For some reason that we'll probably never fully understand, an extraordinary outpouring of energy began to occur around the year 1100. It was so powerful and so passionate that it transformed the way the world looked and thought about God, about justice and power, about women, love and art. This story starts with the almost unbelievable life of the woman we will come to know as Eleanor of Aquitaine. Eleanor had virtually everything this life can grant. Sunlit beauty, inherited power and wealth on a phenomenal scale. Kings as husbands, kings as sons. She lived an epic life in the middle of a whirlwind, entangled with five mightily powerful men who fought for more than a century to control Western Europe. Surrounding them is an incredible array of people who lived in that world doing incredible things, from building stone cathedrals that streamed with sunlight, to fighting two crusades, to inventing fictional characters we still read about. We know of only a few of them, and what we do know of even these favoured few is limited by their records and our own comprehension. Come with us as we journey to meet Eleanor of Aquitaine, Henry Plantagenet, Richard Lionheart, King John, and all the remarkable people surrounding them. To be in their presence is an exhilarating experience. Won't you join us? Welcome back to Lion's Forge. My name is Beckett, and I want to tell you a story, an epic true story of five kings and the Lion Queen. Episode 6, The Terrible Women of the South. The year is 1144. The young couple we met in the last episode, the Aquitanian heiress Eleanor, newly married to Prince Louis Capet, both elevated to the French throne upon Louis's father's death, would be husband and wife for 15 years. They would have two daughters and no sons. Given the fixation of powerful men, especially Frankish kings, on having a male heir, very few wives unable to produce little boys were likely to last. Eleanor undoubtedly remained Queen of France as long as she did because the marriage contracts had provided that unless she had a son to sit on the French throne, the crown would not gain full possession of the Aquitaine, and, very possibly, because her husband truly did love her beauty, her wit, her exotic ways so enticingly different from the austere habits of the chilly north. Although his chaplain, Odo of Doya, remarked approvingly that worldly glory did not cause him sensual delight, even sober Louis must have taken at least occasional pleasure in Eleanor's entourage of funny, flashy Poitavans, with their music, their wisecracks, their handsome clothes, their energy, and their lovely manners. Scented warm water to wash one's hands at table, snot thoughtfully deposited in the innovative napkin, warm waffles for breakfast, sauces flavored with exotic ginger at dinner, fresh linen on the bed. Even the most hardened types aren't completely immune to the seductions of the good life. And one would think that even the shyest and most repressed of young husbands must feel happy when his pretty young wife is happy. The chronicler John of Salisbury, a serious man, would describe Louis as deeply in love with Eleanor. 
She must have possessed great allure, given her reputation that's endured for eight centuries. For hundreds of years, she was reduced to little more than another Eve, seductively sinful. Numberless love affairs were attributed to her, stories that gained momentum even decades after the lady herself was dead. She supposedly slept with her uncle Raymond, and with the Prince Saracen warrior Prince Saladin. She supposedly seduced her second husband while still married to her first, not to mention betting her second husband's father. And let's not forget the rest of the legend. She lured and then murdered that same husband's sweet young mistress. She let herself be seduced by the magnificent knight William Marshall, an intimate friend of her husband and sons. She rode bare-breasted into the Second Crusade, which faltered because of her egotism and thoughtlessness. She effortlessly dominated the King of France and tried with all the determination she possessed to dominate the King of England, up to and including inciting their sons to treason. She presided over so-called courts of love, where men and women toyed dangerously with sexual attraction and desire. She was a she-wolf. Eleanor's exceptional power and wealth, her beauty, daring, and intelligence, drove people to ideas about her that seem equal parts envy of and yearning after her spectacular glamour. As her contemporary, the poet Marie de France grimly observed of life even then, Quote, Anywhere there is a man or woman of great worth, people who envy their good fortune act like vicious, cowardly dogs, spiteful and slanderous. End quote. To this day, historians are unsure where fact separates from fiction. She is one of the most amazing women in Western history, yet we still know pitifully little about what she was really like. Well, for bracing escape from all the gossip, one might read Richard Devise, an English chronicler of the time noted for his plain-spoken honesty, not a common chronicler virtue. Richard described the lady, if some years after her death, as incomparable, lovely to look at, intelligent, well-spoken, energetic, and powerful, yet still possessing those womanly qualities prized in her era— gentleness, and Christian humility. Or consider her tomb effigy. It depicts a woman of great serenity who holds that costly rarity, a book, while her almond-shaped eyes gaze off in thoughtful contemplation. It's true that tomb builders might be motivated to emphasize the most laudable aspects of the deceased to better assure getting paid, but Eleanor's final resting place feels warmed and gentled by the builder's genuine respect for her temperament, her beauty, and her mind. We do know some factual things about her, and can reasonably infer others, despite her sadly being such a historically shadowy figure. When she arrived in squalid Paris, she was all of 15 years old, facing huge changes in her life over which she was powerless. Perhaps in reaction, there probably was a certain youthful frivolity about her during the early years of her French marriage. She happily presided over market fairs and holiday banquets, 
where knights preening themselves on their youthful virility were eager to pay court to this beautiful teenaged queen. Given how young she was when she wedded Louis, her lack of solemn restraint can seem entirely natural and very charming. Or, if you are of such a mind, it can also seem vain and self-indulgent. There is an old story that the deeply disapproving churchman Bernard of Clairvaux was pointedly referring to the young queen when he preached a sermon about sinful females, whose arms he described as loaded with bracelets, pendants of precious stone hanging from their ears, costly fur lining their cloaks. One who probably was of such a mind was Eleanor's mother-in-law, Adelaide de Maurienne, the prior French queen and mother of Louis Capet. Already in mourning for a lost husband and lost authority, separated by a generation of changes in fashion, almost any new queen's mother-in-law would be predisposed to find the young wife frivolous, extravagant, and silly. Nor could it have soothed agitated royal temper that the normally flattering chroniclers admitted that Adelaide was a plain woman, even during her glory days. Now she was 45 years old, the veteran of multiple pregnancies, facing a teenage beauty from a culture that approved of lavish wardrobes and alluring perfumes. Nor had Adelaide been merely the king's forever pregnant wife. Based on the many documents she signed in concert with her husband during his reign, she had been an extraordinarily active queen. This was not someone inclined to meekly step aside when the new girl appeared at court. Perhaps inevitably, Louis's mama did not like Louis's wife. Privately gloating, we can imagine, over her seven sons, while this heiress from the South had none. Adelaide always had her supporters at court, and so the gossip would have started very quickly. Why didn't this young daughter-in-law bear a son? What was wrong with this new queen that she couldn't breed? Eleanor also carried the weight of sour, century-old recollections of the last queen from the lands to the south. That lady, Constance of Arles, had married Hugh Capet's son Robert a hundred years before. Hot-blooded Constance, a Provençal, wasn't someone you'd want to meet in a dark alley. One of Robert's best friends, detecting malevolence behind the pretty face, tried to persuade Robert to send her back. Outraged by the insult, Constance saw to the friend's murder. She encouraged her sons to revolt against their father, and then later favored her younger son to take the throne over his older brother. Eventually, she fought with him, too. Another story maintained that she slashed at her former confessor in the very doorway of a church, gouging his eye from its socket. A man as sober and trustworthy as the Bishop of Chartres pronounced himself too frightened by the prospect of running into this female menace to attend a royal coronation. Eleanor's era had a long memory. That homicidal man-eater had been the last queen to have emerged from those strange foreign places somewhere off near the Pyrenees. With her parents dead, no babies, an incompatible and often absent husband— and no real duties, where could Eleanor turn for comfort and support? Given that her brother had died as a little boy, her own immediate family was almost pitifully small, made up of her younger sister, called Alex, and possibly a bastard half-brother, 
Eleanor and Alex were particularly close. Only a few years apart in age, the sisters had lost their mother as very young children. Then their father so suddenly, their lives turned upside down in the process. One can imagine they had naturally turned to each other for comfort as girls, and as adults they lived together for long stretches, even sleeping in the same bed. Eleanor's second child, a little French princess, would be named Alex. Alex was with her sister when the procession of knights and nobles swept into the archbishop's stone courtyard, bringing the news that Eleanor was to come to Paris to be the young prince's wife. Alex went with her. Both girls, let's not forget, were granddaughters of William IX, he of the famously comprehensive love life, and of La Dangereuse, willing to throw everything away for all-consuming passion. Little Alex was barely twelve at the time of her sister's elevation to Queen of France, but twelve-year-olds, especially highly connected twelve-year-olds, got married every day. Somehow her attention flitted to one of the gentlemen who rode with Louis to fetch Eleanor, the grandly named Raoul, Count of Vermandois, an intimate of the Capets. Count Raoul was a considerable member of the French aristocracy. The Vermandois domain, just north of Paris, dated to the turn of the 6th century, and the Vermandois family had ties all the way back to heroic Charlemagne himself. The Count's exceptionally colorful ancestors included one back in the 10th century, who had held the King of the Franks prisoner for the better part of a decade, another who was assassinated by a rival, and another nicknamed simply, if tellingly, the Insane. We have little idea what Raoul looked like when, aged 52, he rode into the courtyard of the archbishop's house at the side of the French prince, although it said he had only one eye. If chronicles can be believed, five hundred mounted knights were arrayed behind him, their banners flickering in the April breeze. It was soon after Easter, an achingly lovely time of year in the Aquitanian countryside. Eleanor must have been in deep mourning for her father, and was still digesting the reality that she had become ruler of the Aquitaine. She was also dealing with the news that she was expected to marry and move her household to Paris, a life entirely foreign to her. Nor could she forget the appropriate courtesies due the prince, this nervous teenage boy, former candidate for the monastery, now charged with playing the far more debonair role of suitor to the greatest heiress and, reputedly, one of the greatest beauties of the day. The emotional strain on all sides must have been intense. In the background, watching, curtsying, playing with the rings on her fingers, was the pretty little sister. Raoul seems to have filled the role of wise old uncle to his adolescent cousin. He was a valued advisor to the Capets, named the Seneschal of France. The office was very powerful, thanks to its authority over the royal household and the kingdom's defenses, and bitter feuds had been sparked among rival candidates in the past. Eventually, only the most loyal relatives were trusted to hold the office. As a favorite relative and a key member of government, Raoul would have been constantly at court. He was, naturally, married, and his wife came from one of the greatest noble families in France, the House of Blois, 
which ruled the scattered lands of Champagne. A prudent man would have thought carefully about the potential costs of adultery. On the other hand, a prudent man probably would not have been labeled always dominated by lust by the sober chronicler John of Salisbury. Forty years older than Mademoiselle Alex, Raoul drifted into a flirtation carried out over hymnals during mass and horses' manes during hunts. Given their places at court, the two must have been thrown together with fine regularity. We might think Raoul's adolescent son a more appropriate partner for the young queen's very young sister, but in those times, as in ours, the human heart can be most intensely focused when most crazily off-base. The affair took its time. By the time baby sister Alex was 15, Raoul was panting to set his wife aside and Eleanor, undoubtedly besieged by Alex, pressured Louis to permit it. And so, the lovebirds were married in 1140. Raoul would have been 55, his bride 15. His own son was 13. His discarded first wife was utterly furious. Nor did her powerful family take kindly to this insult. Pinning the cause on the boyish king, the king's spoiled sister-in-law, and the king's obviously domineering wife. The first major crisis of Louis Capet's reign was born. While its roots lay in the domestic drama of the king permitting Raoul to divorce a daughter of the house of Blois, the actual conflict played out across Paris, Rome, and the lands of Champagne for the better part of two years. Louis had already gotten his hands dirty in his brief reign, notably in light of the mass execution of accused anti-royalist conspirators in Orléans. Then there was the very nasty episode in Eleanor's capital, Poitiers, after the Aquitanian city, never fond of their French neighbors, rebelled against its new French king. Louis demanded that the rebels, already defeated, hand over their own children as hostages to the crown. Louis's invaluable adviser Suger talked the king out of dragging weeping children from their mother's arms to punish their fathers. But Louis had clearly been intemperate and thoughtless. He seemed to have a pattern of responding to a slap at his sovereignty with brutal force, then reversing course too late, after the damage had been done. There was a further complication. At the time of Alex's marriage, the impulsive young king was deep in the throes of a fight with the Pope over which of two candidates would be the new Archbishop of Bourges. The rule was that local churchmen elected their leader, subject only to papal review. In reality, the nobility liked to play an active role when it suited them, which it often did. One reason for their interest was that aristocratic bastards often gravitated, or were pushed, toward bishoprics, especially the powerful and lucrative ones. This naturally gave rise to a whole new opportunity for furious arguments between Rome, trying to protect the reputation of its clergy, and the high nobles of Europe, trying to look out for their procreative lapses. How to go about it was possibly best demonstrated by England's King Henry II, who said to the monks of Winchester, We order you to hold a free election, 
but forbid you to elect anyone except my clerk Richard. But this long-established practice of noble control was eroding. The Pope wanted sole authority over all those grateful appointees. So while this quarrel between Louis Capet and Pope Innocent II sounds very dull to us, at the time it was a boiling question of who had power in the kingdom, church or monarch, especially in this kingdom still being built from the ground up. The Pope attacked with a powerful weapon. Pius Louis was excommunicated, a great penalty imposed with awesome ceremony. Lighted candles representing the excommunicant solemnly extinguished outside the church doors and then trampled underfoot. Bells rung in the steeple, names shouted out, and all men who valued their own salvation warned to shun the damned soul. To redouble the pressure, any place where Louis might be was placed under papal interdict. Interdict was terrible. No mass, no communion, no baptisms, no forgiveness of sins, no sanctified marriages, no comforting presence of the church as you faced eternity. One witness talked of bodies of the dead lying propped up in trees in the churchyard since they couldn't be buried in holy ground. No wonder interdict was the ultimate weapon in the papal arsenal and accordingly often brought to bear on quarrels with kings. Even monarchs who shrugged at personal excommunication could be intimidated by the threat of interdict, although it is true that more robust royal personalities could force their people to live under interdict's curse for years. At this flashpoint, the Count of Champagne, once close enough to Louis to ride at his side with a betrothal party, decided to weigh in. The Counts of Champagne were of the pugnacious House of Blois, which had a history of being ready to thrust its chin out and dare rebellion. Relations between the Blois family, their Vermandois neighbors, and the Capets were entirely raw thanks to Raoul of Vermandois discarding his first wife, a Blois lady, so he could marry little Alex of Aquitaine, the king's sister-in-law. The current count, Theobald, had already snubbed several obligations of fealty to the young king. The fight over the vacant bishopric gave Count Theobald the perfect opening to call Louis out. Theobald publicly announced his support for the Pope's candidate. In essence, Theobald had signaled his agreement that Louis should be reigned in. Louis in turn decided to slam into Champagne. His invasion route took him east from Paris, across the Seine, up into the fast-draining chalk plateau of western Champagne. For two years, his army raided, burned, and pillaged across Theobald's lands, as various diplomatic resolutions to the conflict were tried and found wanting. Two ghastly years of ruined harvests and empty larders. Even prosperous laymen couldn't be certain their beloved baby would survive the winter. When one year's crop was lost, it was a very long time to the next. Medieval warfare, like all warfare, was an ugly, brutal business. 
Men died with axes driven through their spines or their foreheads. Horses screamed, their guts sagging from mortally wounded bellies. The bloody remnants of armies had to make their way home as best they could, eyes gouged out and arms cut off. Families died of starvation after their crops were trampled and storehouses burned. Little towns, built by hard manual labor over generations, would be forced to spend years restoring what was lost when soldiers camped in the fields and looted everything they could eat, drink, ride, or carry. There is a letter to Louis from Bernard of Clairvaux that says, Only the devil himself could advise you to behave so. Burnings upon burnings. Slaughter upon slaughter. The greatest burning happened in 1143, when Louis moved to sack a very old small town in central Champagne, called Vitry and Pertois, a river port settled where the Sole River forks into the Marne. Louis had the place pillaged and set aflame. In the 12th century, once a major fire started, there was no way to put it out. Wooden buildings with household fires burning on every hearth leaned together on every narrow street. A thousand or more terrified people, most of them probably women and children, tried to shelter in the wood-raftered church. They burned to death. Young King Louis, who was in Vitry when it was attacked, was directly involved in the piteous massacre. This former seminarian, renowned for his piety, now had the reputation of a king who let children starve through two winters and brought ghastly death to the very house of God. He had won nothing and lost much. His foreign wife and her wanton of a sister fully shared in the blame. We've come to the end of our story for the time being. I am Beckett Arnold, narrating from the book Lion's Forge by Karen Markle Knapp, soon to be available at Amazon Books. A big thank you to Francis Butt for voicing our introduction. If you like what you hear, please give us a rating, follow our channel, and share us with your friends. Most importantly, please join us again August 7th for the next episode of Lion's Forge, available everywhere you get your favorite podcasts and now streaming on YouTube with video episode trailers and Facebook, where you can interact with me.